My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of DeMarco Wilson. February 1st, 1997, Charles Newsom was murdered in his car in West Memphis, Arkansas. There are different accounts of what happened. Was it a drive-by? Was it a shooter on the street? Or was it someone else in his car? All the commotion woke DeMarco Wilson, who was asleep in the apartments with his newborn baby. He came outside to see what was going on. Eventually, DeMarco Wilson, his cousin Kendrick Gillum, and his friend Antonio Williams were charged and convicted in the murder. West Memphis police have arrested three men they believe killed someone. However, years later, DeMarco met Jason Baldwin of the West Memphis Three. Three young men who were convicted of murdering three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas back in 1993 walked out of prison this afternoon. And if you haven't heard of that case, I'll explain it in a bit. DeMarco and Jason crossed paths while both were incarcerated in prison. When Jason was released in 2011, he never forgot about the case. And now, Jason and his nonprofit have uncovered evidence, a confession, that could lead to DeMarco's freedom. So why is DeMarco still in prison? And who did kill Charles Newsom? We'll get to that after this. This case came to me from Jason Baldwin and John Harden of Proclaim Justice. Jason was one of the West Memphis Three. Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. The three had been convicted as teenagers of killing three little boys also in West Memphis, Arkansas. It was a sensational story that made nationwide headlines. Three teens demonized. That was the first thing that everybody started saying, that it was a ritualistic killing, satanic killing. The trio was convicted in 1994, and DeMarco knew about the case long before prison. But growing up West Memphis, everybody knew about their case. We'll get deeper into those details later. First, DeMarco tells me how he got connected with Jason when he got to prison. And we talked about our case, and it was, uh, it was a coincidence that we, had, we both were from West Memphis. We both had the uh, site deal with the West Memphis Police Department and the Creighton County Sheriff's Department, and it was three. It was three to their case, like it was three to mine, and I was innocent, and they were saying they were innocent. And I knew from what I was going through, like I just knew. I, I gave them the benefit of the doubt. I was like, if I if I can be caught up in this, then surely they are. We had so many similarities. And those similarities are why we've been calling this the West Memphis Three 2.0 case. 
DeMarco was born in West Memphis, Arkansas on March 21st, 1978 to a single mom. DeMarco um, was actually my first uh, born child, and uh, he was actually the first born grandson to my parents. My name is Doris Wilson, and I am DeMarco Wilson's mother. Doris Wilson raised DeMarco and her two other kids alone. She says they grew up poor, but she did the best she could. We went through some periods of time where we lived with family members. It was probably difficult for him as a child. It's always a concern uh, for me to try to get everything afoot because I never wanted my children teased in school. I mean, you know, kids who are not as fortunate as other kids sometimes do get teased if they don't have the same quality of clothes. I mean, these were concerns that I had, uh, trying to manage out of the income I had. Doris says DeMarco, as the oldest boy, seemed to take on the father figure role. He was especially protective of his little sister, Renetta. He was, uh, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess he felt that he should take on the role of the male in our family, even at a young age, because I think about when Renetta, which is the baby, was young, maybe three or four, and if she did something that I wanted to spank her for. And he was little, so he's like, let's see, maybe he was like seven, I want to say, or almost eight. But anyway, he would come and he'd be like, Ma, what's she do?" And I say, what do you mean, what she do? He was like, well, what's she going to get a spanking for? And I was like, I don't have to explain to you what I'm spanking for. And he'd be like, well, I'll tell it. He didn't want her to get a whooping. So he, even Aww. as an early, I know, I, I think about that all the time. Even as an early age, he was very protective of her. She says one time he even taught Renetta how to fight because he didn't want her to be taken advantage of. DeMarco loved sports, especially basketball. When he was in the 10th grade, and it was uh, evening time, the local newspaper here, uh, mm-hmm. that took a picture of him going up for a layup. So he, he was, he was he was good at sports. He, uh, he showed a lot of talent and a lot of uh, interest in sports. Uh, he was actually part of a little dance group that one of the guys here... Uh, Billy Joe Hayes, he organized uh, like young people the, through the Boys Club, try to keep him out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was in a group through the Boys Club where they played, they, they did uh, competition dances and they did do sports like baseball and they traveled. And he was also super smart. And I actually have a nephew that uh, <laughs> said he tried to beat Mark and everything. My mom would give them like a uh, oh, a few dollars if they had A's or B's or whatever on their report card. And he tells the story how he just was so sure that he would beat DeMarco, but he never got the, whatever the money was, the $5, because DeMarco always got it, because he always had the A. And he would be amazed because he never brought books home. So he was pretty much the type of kid in class. He could catch on just by being in class. Now, the elephant in the room is the backdrop of this case, West Memphis, Arkansas. West Memphis, a small city which back in 1997 had only about 27,000 people living in it, got a big reputation because of the notoriety 
of the West Memphis Three case. West Memphis, Arkansas, 1994. Three eight-year-old boys, best friends, badly beaten, hogtied, and hidden in the watery bayou in the woods where they played. The three boys that were killed were only eight years old. Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Chris Byers. At trial, prosecutors call it a satanic cult, a demonic ritual fueling the town's bloodlust with descriptions of sexual torture and mutilation. Damien, Jesse, and Jason, to this day, still say they're innocent. And with mounting support and new evidence in 2011, after 18 years in prison, they were released on an Alford plea. Nearly two decades after they were convicted of murdering three Boy Scouts, hogtied and left in a ditch, and four years after ABC News first broke word of DNA evidence that could exonerate them, today the West Memphis Three walked free. And the Alford plea allows them to profess their innocence, but the state can still keep their conviction. Despite being free, Damien, Jesse, and Jason are still convicted murderers. I recently flew down to Texas to meet with Jason and talk with him for Wrongful Conviction Day. Okay, hello everyone. We are live. I am here, Maggie Freeling, in Austin, and I am with Jason Baldwin of the West Memphis Three, who was convicted in 1994 released in 2011. While there, we also talked about DeMarco's case. But first, I asked him what it was like growing up in West Memphis. West Memphis was, was a bit of a, uh, a mystery to me, honestly. Um, I grew up in Lakeshore Trailer Park, which is in between Marion and West Memphis. Jason, like DeMarco, grew up poor. So my mom was like, I need to find some activities for y'all besides, you know, just playing in the neighborhood. Um, my brother is a veteran. Your uncles are veterans. So we have VFW membership, Veterans of Foreign Wars. And they have a swimming pool in West Memphis, right? Members get in free. And since we were members of the family, my grandmother was a member, we got in free. But we could bring friends who weren't members, and they only had to pay 25 cents. Jason remembers one day when he was a small kid, he went to the pool with his friends. Mom drops us off, and they will not let us in. When I say they will not let us in, I'm not talking about the people who are running the pool, you know, taking, checking to see if you're a member, you got your card, or paying a fee. I'm talking the other kids all ran to the fence and were yelling, in, get the F out. In lovers, y'all can't come in here. And they started throwing pickles at us. Because my friends, our friends were black. You know, and that's so they called them the racial right. slur and then used the racial slur on us for being their friends. Wow. I asked Doris about this. You know, and he's telling me from a white person's perspective about oh. how West Memphis is. So, I mean, for, for y'all, what is, what is West Memphis like? Well, uh, okay. West Memphis, it is the South, and it is the South the way the South is described, okay? So for me, and, I, and I'm going to get to DeMarco, I can remember riding through Marion, Arkansas, which is not that far from West Memphis. Now I was born in 1960 and actually seeing someone hanging from a tree. So Arkansas and Creighton County is actually... Especially at that time, I mean, it's pretty much the way that Jason would have described him. Now, that was in the 60s, but years later, when DeMarco was 14, Doris felt it was still unsafe for him in West Memphis. 
basically, he wanted to stay with his dad at that point because it was just so much going on that I was afraid for him as a young black person in West Memphis. Specifically? There was a lot of shooting going on during this period of time, okay? West Memphis was like a little war zone, and this is the truth, okay? It, I look at it the grace of God that DeMarco was not shot. Because a lot of times when shootings were going on, it was in an area where he was, you know, that places that he hung out. At this time, DeMarco was hanging out at the Mayfair Apartments. The Mayfair Apartments are actually across the bayou from where the bodies of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Chris Byers were found. To this day, people think there could have been witnesses at the Mayfair Apartments that night. And to give a picture, the Mayfair Apartments was not a good place. Neighbors had complained about the complex for years. By 2004, it was in shambles. Tenants received letters that there was no money for repairs, so they stopped paying rent. Trash removal began piling, and sanitation workers couldn't get to dumpsters because the parking lot was so full of potholes. Today, the complex has been torn down. And I used to tell DeMarco, trouble is so easy to get into, but it's so hard to get out of. Doris remembers the night of the shooting. DeMarco was just 18. Uh, the shooting, actually that night, and it's embedded in my mind, Maggie, that particular night, because of all the shooting that was going on, and I, my sister, when the shooting happened, she called me. And she said, Doris, there's been another shooting in Mayfair. You better check on DeMarco. Now, this had got to be a, a regular routine among, you know, family and friends when it was a shooting because it was a lot of shooting going on. So we would reach out and check on the boys. So uh, it, it could have easily have been him that was shot with the, the way that the atmosphere was in West Memphis. February 1st, 1997, DeMarco was at the Mayfair Apartments. At the time, DeMarco had actually moved out of West Memphis to Memphis to get away from all the crime and craziness. He was just trying to be a good dad and figure out what he wanted to do with his life. His girlfriend at the time had just given birth to his son, Marquavis, a month earlier. DeMarco also had a three-year-old daughter named Sierra with another woman. DeMarco's current girlfriend gave birth to Marquavis via C-section and was having complications. So she wanted to stay with her sister in the Mayfair apartments. Yeah, I was laying across the bed asleep. She, she and I, my son, he was, I wanted to say he was like in a rocker or whatever. And her sister Tracy and her daughter was in a, the other bedroom. And we were asleep. And I remember just hearing a lot of shots. And it woke us up in our sleep. DeMarco says, then the neighbors knock on the door. I remember the neighbor that lived in the door to them coming knocking on the apartment's door. She lived upstairs. And the woman next door came knocked on the apartment door and said that she, someone was shooting outside and that one of the cars that was involved in the incident ran into uh, my son's mother's sister car, which was parked outside in front of the park. The neighbor said that his girlfriend's sister's car was hit by another car during the shooting. And I, we all came to the door, and at this time, everybody came outside. Everybody was coming outside of the apartment as well. And I remember looking out there, everyone was standing outside, right? And shortly after, the police were out. And this was when Doris called her son. And I was like, Mark, Judy just called me and told me uh, that there was a shooting in Mayfair. I was like, are you okay? You know, what happened? And he said to me, he was like, Mom, 
I was in the house sleep. He said, we was in the house sleep. He was like, we didn't even know what had happened until Carla, which was the next door neighbor to the apartment they were in, knocked on the door and told us. 24-year-old Charles Newsom, a known drug dealer with a violent past, was dead. He had been driving through the Mayfair parking lot with his friend, Tyrone Ellis, when he was fatally shot through the back. Witnesses described a gunfight. However, there are differing testimony about whether it was with another car or people standing in the parking lot. According to the passenger, Tyrone Ellis, the shooters were on the street. The investigation shows a 9mm and potentially two semi-automatic weapons were used. The incident left a hail of bullets in the apartment complex that neighbors picked up in the days following. The police allegedly did not make any serious attempt to collect all the evidence or secure the crime scene. Tyrone Ellis, the passenger in Newsom's vehicle, was questioned two hours later and did not mention DeMarco or anyone he was associated with. He also said he was the only person in the car with Newsom. He gave three or four different statements. I think the first statement he gave that night, he said he didn't know who did it. Then he gave another statement. He he didn't mention no names. He gave us another statement where he said Kendrick and Antonio did it. And then four, five days later, he went to a police statement and gave us four statement. And he said... That's when he implicated me and a fourth guy named Ronald Jackson. The fourth person was Ronald Jackson, but he was never charged. The prosecution alleged that this was a gang hit. As mentioned, Charles Newsom was a known drug dealer and was allegedly part of a gang. I asked DeMarco about this. Did you know Charles Newsom? Did you know Tyrone Ellis? Did you know these people? Yes, I, West Memphis is not that big, so I was familiar with him. But I wasn't in a game. At least for him, he said it was similar to what Darrell Ewing said. His friends were just some kids hanging out, particularly black kids, labeled as a gang. It was more like me and me and my little friends or something. It wasn't no gang activities or stuff like that going on. Yeah. Yeah, like you didn't have like beef with another crew or anything like that. Oh no. No man, no man. The trial began on November 4th, 1997. The judge was David Burnett, who infamously presided over the West Memphis Three case. Despite lawyers asking to separate the defendants so they'd each face trial alone, Burnett ruled to try DeMarco, Antonio, and Kendrick together. He ruled the same for Jason and Damien in the West Memphis Three. DeMarco's public defender, Bart Ziegerhorn, had never tried a capital murder case, and DeMarco says he barely met with him before trial. The public defender I had, he, he really didn't give me a defense at all. Uh, I think when I was in the county jail, he kind of see me like twice. Yeah. Uh, I told him, you know, my story, what, what happened, and uh, he was like, uh, he, came, he came back and saw me again, and he, he ended up like uh, trying to get me the plea bargain for a deal. I'm like, man, I'm not taking anything. I didn't do anything. They offered DeMarco 10 years and second-degree murder for his cooperation. He refused. At trial, Tyrone Ellis, the passenger in the car with Charles Newsom, was the star witness. He testified that he saw DeMarco, Kendrick, and Antonio shooting at him and Newsom as they drove through the parking lot. And his statement changed a few times. Besides not mentioning any names in his first statement, Ellis says he first saw the shooters out of the passenger window. Then he says the driver's side window. 
His story was all over the place. Then Ellis says they were shooting from the back, and once Newsom was hit, he collapsed, and they hit a parked car. Ellis took the wheel and coasted them around the lot to Newsom's mom's house, where he called 911. Ellis, it should be noted, was facing several charges for other crimes, but they were dropped once he agreed to cooperate in the case against DeMarco, Kendrick, and Antonio. There were also two jailhouse informants who also testified for the state. Specifically, Jeff Caton testified that Kendrick Gillum confessed to him while they were both in the Crittenden County Jail together in March or April. Caton is the one who brought up the alleged gang retaliation. As mentioned, Kendrick was DeMarco's cousin, and Kendrick and Antonio did have some beef with guys in Charles Newsom and Tyrone Ellis's crew. Well, they had uh, the, the, one of the guys that testified on me, the state's key witness, he was involved in... So the theory is, once Antonio and Kendrick's name came up as known rivals, it was easy to tack on to Marco as Kendrick's cousin. It's important to note, though, that all witnesses who were asked their relationship with DeMarco said they just knew him from around. He was only peripherally associated with anyone, except, of course, his family. Both Kendrick and Antonio had alibi witnesses testify at trial. DeMarco's alibi witness, his girlfriend, and her sister did not testify. Ziegerhorn allegedly thought that they would not be credible because it was his girlfriend and her sister. The jury heard 18 witnesses on the state side and only four for the three defendants combined. On November 7th, 1997, the jury found DeMarco, Ken, and Antonio guilty of the murder of Charles Newsom, and they were sentenced to life without parole. Having him incarcerated to watch him, Maggie, go in as a 19-year-old and to see him gray now. I mean, sleepless nights, uh, I, I don't even have the word, I can't even put in words the type of horror and the things that you imagine him being sexually assaulted. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's just so much that you worry about when someone is incarcerated and then for the time frame that he's been incarcerated, becoming institutionalized. To be honest with you, Maggie, the very first year, the first whole year, my whole family thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, you know, I was... <laughs> I was spending time, you know, reading, trying to read law books. I was just, you know, just trying to figure out what in the world. But uh, for him to have been taken out of the family equation in the way that he is incarcerated, the strength and leadership that he offered siblings, of course, they had to go on without that. Years go by in prison for DeMarco, Antonio, and Kendrick. DeMarco got his GED while in the county jail awaiting trial. He's taken some college classes and became a tutor for other guys getting their GED. But he's been denied vocational training because of his sentence, life without parole. I do see it, Maggie, as a form of slavery even now. Uh, People don't like it when I say that. It's just modern day slavery because if I can lock you up and work you for 40 years for free, what is that? especially if you are not guilty of what I'm locking you up for. But while DeMarco is living every day in and out with a monotonous regiment behind bars, plans for his future, ones he didn't even know about, were starting to take effect. 
In 2011, Damien Eccles, Jesse Kelly, and Jason Baldwin were released on the Alford plea. As soon as they were released, Jason was already thinking about starting his own organization to help free the wrongfully incarcerated. And he could not shake hearing DeMarco Kendrick and Antonio's story. Your lawyer is the same defense attorney as in this case. As Antonio Williams had, yes. Antonio came into the law library. He's like, hey, you might not believe what happened to me. But he started telling me, and as he's telling me, he mentions Paul Ford and Burnett and everything. And so I'm like, my ears are really, like, it's really peaking. My interest. I'm like, oh, my God, yes. Yeah, he's like, hey, you know, I am innocent. Uh, I had Judge Burnett. I had Paul Ford, you know, the same people who worked your case, you know. And so when, when he told me that, I knew, you know, that it's most likely that he is innocent, you know, because I'm innocent. And no one believed me, so how would I not believe him? And Jason knew what it was like to be poor in West Memphis and have the system stacked against you. Jason told me a story about what happened to him. He says he was about 11 years old with a bunch of other kids playing around in an abandoned building. The police showed up and took all the kids in. Every single kid in that trailer park was taken away. And we were all appointed the same public defender, Mr. Montgomery. And so we end up in court in Marion Courthouse. First time I met the prosecutor, Mr. John Fogelman, he gets up and tells the judge, he says, Your Honor, I think two years in the state reform school would do all these kids some good. At the time, I'm 11. My brother Matt is nine. There are kids ranging in ages from eight to 13 or 14, you know, maybe 15 at the oldest, you know, whose older brother or sister they went and got, you know. And so what we were told not to worry, now the prosecutor's telling the judge that he believes two years in the state reform school would do all these kids some good, every last one of us. Didn't matter how old we were or how young we were or what we were doing there. He was going to send us to kids' prison for two years. They didn't get their case taken care of, like their public defender said. Instead, made us all take a deal for five years probation and a $500 fine probation each. probation at 11 years old? At 11 years old. So Jason says that's what happens when you're white and poor in West Memphis. And he thought of Antonio, Kendrick, and DeMarco. He could only imagine how much worse they probably had it. When Jason got out, he immediately connected with his friend John Harden, who was one of the early supporters of the West Memphis Three. But the two had never met in person. We met face-to-face for the first time at, on, the, on the rooftop of the Madison Hotel the night you got out of, out of prison. Um, but it's been just a, a brotherhood ever since. Yeah, he's, he's one of my best friends ever since. So You're like... The best things I've felt in the world were getting married, seeing my son born, and watching you guys go home, Mm -hmm. finally, after all these years. So when he was out, Jason thought of all the people who rallied behind him and the West Memphis Three and said to John, I want to do that for other innocent people. I want to keep freeing innocent people. And I told John, like, I promised the guys in there I wouldn't forget them, so let's do this. And so... We put together, you know, Proclaim Justice. In 2017, they finally had the organization together and were ready to tackle DeMarco, Antonio, and Kendrick's case. This was a blessing, DeMarco says. 
that was wonderful. I had written innocent projects and like tried to contact all type of people to get some help. And I don't know, but like I always kept the faith and and it would get discouraging sometimes, but uh when he got when he contacted me, I was like, Wow and I mean my whole attitude changed. John, who you heard talking to Jason, is the executive director and co-founder of Proclaim Justice. He's also one of the private investigators for the team who is directly working on this case. John first walked me through the case against the West Memphis 3 2.0 and what he's found. To start, witnesses were totally confused. There is so confusing. Some say that we've got one car going, you know, one direction, the other going the other direction. There's bullets firing there on the main main road. Some are saying that in the parking lot, two cars are shooting at each other. Some are saying that the two cars never shot at each other and there were three or four guys standing outside. Right. It is just a huge confusion of, of what actually is, happened. You know, it's like when you're watching television and there's a gunfight, you're going to be glued to the TV to watch it, but in real life and the bullets start flying, you're going to try to get out of the way. Yeah. So that kind of puts a limitation on your ability to observe. And one of these witnesses is the one who brought DeMarco's name up. He said he saw DeMarco outside after the shooting, acting suspicious. And so then you did have another uh, Tyrone Ellis at some point. He finally, in the third statement, says that DeMarco Wilson was, was there. And is the thought process that, you know, this witness had told the police and the police think, right, we got this guy who's acting weird, so now we need Ellis to just kind of say, okay. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, the chronology of, of that is um, um, pretty well true, yeah. Basically, their hypothesis is between the first statement Ellis made and the third where he finally named DeMarco, someone fed him DeMarco's name. The other thing that John is focusing on is the actual crime scene. The fatal shot through Charles Newsom's back left gunshot residue on his jacket. Now, anyone who knows forensics knows that gunshot residue only happens from a close shot, meaning someone in the back of the car. But remember, Ellis said only he and Newsom were in the car. So was there someone else in the back? It wasn't investigated well, and it certainly wasn't cross-examined well when the ballistics expert. The ballistics expert was actually Dr. Frank Peretti, who was also involved in, in the West Memphis 3 case. And it, um, so anyway, that's a whole other mess because he's not a gunshot expert at all. Dr. Frank Puretti, the medical examiner, also gave confusing testimony. He said the bullet in Newsom's back passed through the trunk and the seat into his back, which would be consistent with what witnesses said. But there was gunshot residue on the jacket, which he said would only be present up to nine inches away, so close range. There was also a bullet in Newsom's arm, which he said did not pass through any objects, like from outside of the car into the car. So was it someone shooting inside the car? What did he testify to in your trial? Uh, he testified to the uh, mechanism of injury. He's the one that uh, said the lake knife, the knife that was found in the lake behind my house, was consistent with some of the wounds on the boys. And now he's testifying in ballistics. Right. Yeah. And, and, and before he testified in, in DeMarco's trial about ballistics, he said he's not a ballistics expert and he doesn't have any training, but he's going to give the report. Yeah, and they were sort of, it was one of those situations where they were sort of careful to 
to say I'm not a ballistics expert, but then he's sitting there giving this testimony about ballistics. uh, Because it's a bad judge. Judge Burnett, again, the same judge in the West Memphis 3 case. You've got objections. You know, even even Ford and and Bart Ziegenhorn and and West, who were the three defense attorneys, there were objections about that, but they were overruled by Judge Burnett, and so he's testifying to things that he's just not an expert on. Um, So it's how does that happen? We've got a bad judge, and we've got prosecutors that just want a prosecution. That's that's how things like that happen. How do they get that this is like a drive-by shooting if he's shot in the back? That's a que- that's a million dollar question because it's also the way the the bullet trajectory went down from the top of his back downward towards his lung and pierced his his lung and that's how he died. So if you've got two if you got three or four gunmen depending on which witness, you know, um which witnesses account uh you want to believe um and they're standing on a sidewalk it just doesn't make sense that from some distance away, the bullet is going to go down in a downward tra- trajectory on the driver of a car. So it's a mystery to us. I mean, one thing that we have not solved, and, and it's, a, it's a lead, um, is was there in fact somebody in the back of that car? And although John finds this gunshot residue to be one of the red flags, unfortunately... We've discovered that they've lost the jacket. So, you know, that's no longer in evidence and, and we can't actually do that test, but at least we do have for posterity that it was acknowledged there was gunshot residue on that jacket. It's probably with the Bojangles blood. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> probably with the Bojangles blood. And if you know the West Memphis Three case, there was a man seen in the Bojangles restaurant near the murder scene the night of the crime. He left blood in the bathroom and it's been theorized that this man was the killer of the three young boys and the blood could have proven it. Except... The blood was collected by police and evidently lost. And remember, this is a small town with a small police department. These cases are only taking place a few years apart. The blood from Bojangles was handled by Detective Byrne Ridge, who also worked on DeMarco's case, and he was one of the investigators. Mike Allen, who also played a role in the investigation of the West Memphis Three case, became Crittenden County Sheriff at the time of DeMarco's case. Detective Regina Meeks was also on the scene of the Bojangles incident and was a lead investigator in DeMarco's case. And the missing jacket? John told me that Crittenden County actually said they have zero material evidence left at all. He says this is incompetent at best, but knowing the county and law enforcement pretty well from the West Memphis 3 case, he thinks this is something more nefarious. But all that aside, probably the most significant thing that we have developed is we have a person who is confessing to this murder, who I have interviewed in prison three different times. He's in prison for life on another murder. Um, And through our investigation, we became aware of him and his potential involvement. And so we, two other investigators and I, have interviewed him three different times. He's giving us very specific facts of the case, um, times, cars, um, the whole nine yards. And we're grilling him pretty hard. This person that John wants to keep anonymous got in touch with law enforcement in 2017 and wrote an affidavit confessing. He says 
it was a drug deal gone bad. And so I, I, I believe that confession to be true. So we have somebody who's perfectly ready to go stand in front of a judge and say, I did this crime and implicate the other person who did the crime with him. The whole thing gives us this whole account of the day, where he came from, where he was at immediately before. And there were actually two guys uh, with him, gives us both of their names. This guy says he was in another vehicle in the backseat shooting at Charles Newsom's vehicle. And he did indeed see a third person in the back of Newsom's car. So he, he's told us that over and over. There was somebody else in the back of that car. Um, and he wonders if, you know, that person uh, shot... Um, <laughs> he wonders if that person shot Charles Newsom. Um, I don't have an answer for that. That's yeah, one of these yeah. mysteries. Jason says it could be from friendly fire, an accident by someone else in the car. And that would have changed the entire charges. No longer could anybody who was actually even guilty of it be charged for capital murder. Yeah. They can only be charged for first degree or second degree at yeah. that point. And death penalty and life without parole cannot be sought. Yeah. It could be. It, no. it, it could be. Um, and, and if that's the case, that might explain why the judge and the prosecutor were so adamant about not getting a ballistic expert to testify because they would have been able to testify to that from their experience. John says this guy has no connection to the West Memphis 3.2.0, Antonio Kendrick or DeMarco or their family or friends. And this is important because if there was some sort of connection, the prosecution could potentially discredit his story. However, right now, John can't see any motive for him to lie. It's not often when we're doing reinvestigations of cases that you get somebody who is adamantly confessing to this with no known motivation except for to tell the truth. And so as we were going through this in, in, investigation, there's just going to be a lot of things that will never be answered about this case because of the conflicting witness statements and all that. But we have been able to verify this confession enough that we feel very strongly about it. And, and you know, DeMarco has a great alibi. He's um, he's just absolutely innocent. And um, Antonio and, and Kendrick almost certainly are, too. Yeah. Since the conviction 23 years ago, Doris has had time to think about what happened to her son. I've always, I've racked my mind a million times to try to figure out how specifically DeMarco got caught up in this. And there were some incidents that were he had with the police. And I, I will forever believe this put a mark on him. Now, true enough, I want to say he was about 17. And at this time, he was selling marijuana. Doris says that DeMarco got busted but on a technicality, was not convicted. She recounts what she remembers the judge saying. He said, Mr. Wilson, this is your lucky day. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. He said, because the police did not follow procedure, you get to walk out of here today. But your name bet not never cross my desk again. And when this situation came up, Maggie, that, I mean, to honest God, that came back to my mind. So that mind frame is is the court system in Arkansas, and that sounds petty, I'm sure, but I think that actually put a mark on him, and they were looking for his name to come up again. 
in 2018, Jeff Caton, the jailhouse informant, recanted his testimony to proclaim justice and says the prosecution made deals with him on charges he was facing in exchange for his testimony. In July of this year, DeMarco's father passed away from the coronavirus. That was terrible. Um, I had always dream, uh, dreamed or prayed and thought about getting out, you know, before, long before this. I never thought it would take this long. As the saying goes, uh, it's easy to get in trouble, but hard to get out of. But, uh, yeah, he passed, I was like, it was one of my lowest points because, like I said, I never thought it would take this long. Yeah. And with all this going on with the corona and everything, I was like, wow. DeMarco's daughter, Sierra, is now 25 and has two kids of her own. I've missed all my kids' life and my grandchildren's life. So when you get out, where are you going to go? Are you going to go back to your mom's until you figure things out? Well, my mom, she's back in West Memphis right now. And I definitely don't want to be in West Memphis, so... Uh, I had I got family members like Shredded out who you know extended the house to me. My brother in Atlanta wants me to come live with him. Demarco says when he's out, he wants to continue to go to school and get a college degree, and like Jason, help people who are wrongfully convicted. Yes, definitely. Being an advocate for people in my situation, definitely. Yeah. I I was watching uh uh. I don't know if it was the voice for uh, the American Idol. This guy, he died like 37 years in Louisiana. Yeah. And I think it was Simon, uh, you know, like they was helping this guy. I was like, wow, it brought tears to my But first, it's small steps, like figuring out where to live when he gets out and what to eat. And so have you thought about um, what the first food you want to eat is? Oh, I, I look at commercials all the time. I see all these foods. I'm like, wow, they got that? <laughs> like what? What are you wondering about? Uh, I mean, some of everything. I talk to my family and them, baby, how eating and stuff. They be like, they had this, they had that. I be like, wow. But it, it doesn't even matter. I'm just ready to try something different. <laughs> this prison food is, is, is so terrible. Proclaim Justice has hired a lawyer for DeMarco and are working on gathering enough evidence for an evidentiary hearing. If you want to help DeMarco, go to the Proclaim Justice website, proclaimjustice.org, and donate to their legal team. You can also find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining our Patreon. It shows us how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonuses. Also, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessnetwork.com. 